Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey listeners, Becky here. Just a quick content warning before we start. In today's episode, we talk about a film that deals with some subjects that may be disturbing to some listeners, including death animal death, childhood trauma, and concepts of survival. If you would like to skip past this part of our episode, it's the first film we talk about after the break, and if you skip to the 48-minute mark, we'll talk about our last film. Thank you so much for listening. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. What can we learn about ourselves, our history, and our modern world from the movies released in a single year? Well, it turns out an awful lot. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. The A Year in Film TV series is currently available on Hollywood Suite On Demand and the Hollywood Suite family of channels in Canada. Season 1 is available now, and you can find out more at hollywoodsuite.ca. A single TV episode can't contain all the stories about movies in a single year. So in each episode of the podcast, myself, film and content specialist Cam Maitland, and film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher will bring some more movies from the selected year to life. So get into Crane Stance and face some childhood traumas head on in this episode of A Year in Film, 1978, Part 3, Kung Fu Hustles North America and the British Invade Animation. When I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, my parents were heavily into martial arts, which means me and my sisters were big into martial arts. It wasn't just karate and weapons classes. No, no, no. My parents hunted down classic martial arts movies for us to all watch together as a family. And then my sisters and I would get all riled up and there'd be an accident and then we'd have a cool scar to explain to people later. I thought this was normal until high school. Turns out a lot of people of my generation didn't have their first experience with what would be dubbed as the Kung Fu movie until Jackie Chan came out with 1995's Rumble in the Bronx. That, of course, launched him as a household name in the U.S., but both he and Kung Fu hit North American popular culture way back in the late 60s and the 70s, and 1978 was a big year for two massive breakthroughs, and they have resonated down through music, fashion, and uh, we're going to talk about that today. So, Cam, let's talk about Kung Fu and North America. Sure. I mean, uh, Kung Fu films have existed for a very long time, but they kind of have a, an interesting uh, relationship uh, with China that uh, and Hong Kong that produce kind of the majority of them. What you need to understand to understand the sort of boom in 70s uh, kung fu films is uh, the separation between uh, Mandarin filmmaking and Cantonese filmmaking, which generally... <laughs> A class by Cameron Maitland. Yeah, oh boy. Uh, and also, yeah, let me let me just say that uh, all, all uh, history of kung fu is like Talmudic scholarship. Uh, it's a lot of debate. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, I saw a lot of, we're getting a lot of trickled sources, uh, often interpreted by a white guy. So, uh, just, yeah. I, I'm doing my best to parse it here. <laughs> uh, but generally what, what is considered as Mandarin filmmaking, uh, mostly comes from mainland China and Cantonese filmmaking, uh, for sure at the time, came from Hong Kong. There's obviously a tension there. Hong Kong was still a British colony. Uh, China had, had gone through its revolution. It was a communist colony. Uh, and the interesting thing is, of course, is filmmakers want money. <laughs> so, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, Shaw Brothers, which we will talk about, they appealed to mainland China with, uh, kind of traditional Mandarin films. And, uh, Cantonese films were, uh, sometimes they were banned completely, uh, by the mm-hmm. government and couldn't play at all. Currently in the seventies, we were talking about Cantonese film was, uh, mostly TV. Hong Kong really took over TV, but the big kind of shift between uh, Mandarin filmmaking, which is where film really started in China, and uh, Cantonese, is partially uh, in the 1940s, there was a massive population boom in Hong Kong. Also, obviously, kind of shifting governments in mainland China caused a lot of artists to go to Hong Kong. Uh, so mm-hmm. for a long time, mainland China had most of the filmmakers, uh, but many of them left. Um, but uh, the big kind of switch is Bruce Lee, really. Uh, honestly, filmmakers, uh, Cantonese filmmakers, were a little more forward-thinking uh, because you were trying to appeal uh, to the government on mainland China with a lot of the Mandarin films. They were a little more staid. Uh, actually, the government had completely banned uh, wuxia films, which is kind of the primary genre of uh, kung fu. We tend to um, associate it with the flying swordsman genre, okay. the kind of magical fantasy. The wire foo, if you will. Yeah, but in reality, <laughs> wuxia is a very all-encompassing genre. And f- it, it's kind of, the, to think the closest relative is kind of in Western uh, or European literature, is like a chivalrous knight or a cowboy. It, wuxia is very much referring to like somebody who lives on a code of honor that is outside mm-hmm. of the government and outside of as we see in all of these movies that we're about to talk about. Uh, but because they live on a code of honor that is outside of the government or religion, uh, it's considered a borderline seditious by certain governments. Hmm. Uh, so for a long time, it was discouraged. And only really the popularity of Japanese film really started pushing the government to be like, okay, we got to not only uh, allow Wuxia, we have to encourage it uh, because um, obviously uh, they don't have a great relationship with the Japanese post-war. Uh, and suddenly Japanese films and samurai films, which are essentially Wuxia pictures, samurai live on a code of honor that is non-governmental, were so popular. So mm. suddenly that was happening. Also, Hong Kong was booming. Uh, Bruce Lee came from Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong was cool. Everybody loved it. Uh, Golden Harvest was there. The Shaw brothers had a stranglehold almost since the dawn of film, but Golden Harvest, because they were a little more forward looking, uh, suddenly started producing a bit different kung fu pictures and kung fu pictures that kind of embraced the anti-government stance, Mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, like the chaotic, anarchic stance that the uh, mainland Chinese government was not into. Uh, But unfortunately, mainland Chinese people were way into it. And uh, the government Mm -hmm. is not stupid enough to uh, ban something that people love and makes a lot of money. So uh, you started seeing more and more kung fu movies and more and more celebrities and stars and more and more interest in kind of the genre as a whole. So with that, then, how did stuff end up in North America? So we're going to 
probably touch briefly on Bruce Lee right now, but he passed away in 1973. So this is several years before 1978. When you were going to see a kung fu movie in North America, what were you generally seeing on screen and how did it get there? Well, you can uh, thank the uh, goblin we call colonialism. Because basically, the British... The British rulers in 1963 passed a law that required all films produced in Hong Kong to have uh, English subtitles. That also allowed a lot of these Cantonese films to include other uh, Chinese dialects, which opened them up. But I think that it also meant that even before dubbing, uh, these were exportable. Because these were films that had English writing. I wondered about that because my my dad lived in Hong Kong during this time. Um, I was just a smidgen away from being born in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, he did describe being able to see any film because it always had English subtitles. And I found that so, I did find that quite surprising. I mean, it's funny because as we talked about, uh, you know, the Chinese nationalist parties worrying about seditious material, so too were the British. They were worried that these films would carry an anti-British message, which weirdly they eventually did. (laughs) And like, sorry, uh, again, the British were like, I guess they're popular. I guess Jackie Chan better beat up as many British people as possible. I think that that started it. And then eventually dubbing became huge. They realized these were low-cost films, obviously. Shaw Brothers for a long time had kind of figured out the pipeline. Uh, but I think that theaters in America were particularly interested uh, in things that were cheap, uh, that were not from studios that charged a lot of money. They, they started filling uh, cheaper theaters, uh, local small theaters, uh, grind houses, if you will. Uh, and yeah, they became a, a good alternative. And maybe the dubbing was terrible. Maybe the... Uh, subtitles didn't make any sense as you see on many but uh the action was there and and kung Mm -hmm. fu kind of is this thing that can uh cross boundaries because you don't need to understand what they're saying really they uh it's like watching opera yeah absolutely which leads us perfectly into our first film which is drunken master starring jackie chan do you guys remember what your first experience like jackie chan's now like the guy do you guys remember what your first experience of seeing him was like and what he was capable of oh yeah i mean i think like you said rumble in the bronx was probably the first thing i saw yeah and uh just especially as a kid those uh blooper reels at the end where you saw it was kind of his obsession to have these i mean blooper reel is rude because it's also like showing you men taken off to the hospital but uh (laughs) the fact that he realized uh partially due to his time in america that people like to see how stunts happen and kind of the blood and sweat involved in stunts so he was just otherworldly because Honestly, due to insurance and stuff, uh, North America just did not have stunts like he did. You can't do it. No, he's no. basically uninsurable is, yes. I think, what it was. And he didn't he have to – I think at one point he had to move his operations from Hong Kong because he, to, like, an outskirt because he could no longer get insured in Hong oh, Kong. Like, gosh. there's a whole story about I can't that. Even, oh I can't even imagine. It's <laughs> got to be something. But he also does have this spectacular sense of responsibility. So when you look at him talk about interviews about uh, the first Drunken Master, um, he's very clear it's choreography, it's dancing, it's not violence. Violence. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the second film he actually made, this, The Legend of Drunken Master, the sequel in 94, is an answer to Drunken Master because he wanted to show it's bad to drink, it's bad to fight. Mm. Whereas Drunken Master is like, hey, this is a whole <laughs> heck of a lot of fun and it's slapstick and it's funny and it's yeah. very cool. This is partially uh, a boom for Jackie Chan uh, because uh, Bruce Lee died. 
basically. Uh, yeah. there, there was no more Bruce Lee. People were desperate to find the next star of Hong Kong. Jackie Chan had come up through the Peking Opera. It involves, it's not opera in the sense we think. Uh, it is, it is like uh, a brutal uh, workhouse that teaches you <laughs> to, uh, do all sorts of what he does. An equivalent that uh, Alicia and I were talking about is it's like children who were in vaudeville who then mm-hmm. came up to be major silent film stars, people like Harold Lloyd. And uh, I can't help but think of the comparison to Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know where it was. His act with his parents was he was literally thrown around the stage, crashing into things. because child- human football. He, the, he was called the human mop. That was his, that oh, was his title, God. the human mop. So, you know, child abuse, hilarious. <laughs> yes. um, but if then led to being one of the greatest physical actors of all time, yeah, right? And, so Jackie Chan went through that thing. Oh, very much the same. And Jackie Chan will make no bones that it was absolutely child abuse. Uh, but he was even famous as a child. Uh, he was part of something called the Seven Little Fortunes, uh, along with people we know like Sam Hung and Yun Bao. Uh, hmm. And so he had been trying to break into film kind of for a while, not really made his footing. And then 1978 came, and he just had two back-to-back hits in Snake in the Eagle Shadow, which we're not going to mention much of. It's quite a lot like Drunken Master. They're kind of (laughs) spiritual sequels, but it's a a much more straight traditional, what people would maybe refer to as like a Mandarin Kung Fu movie, Uh, whereas uh, Drunken Master is kind of the first time you're seeing Jackie do what he does best, uh, which is inserting a lot of comedy into his stunts and his uh, kung fu work. When reading a lot of reviews of this film, like modern reviews from like 2020 and, and to, you know, the 2000s in general, people are like, well, I started to watch it and it was kind of May, it was a little slow. And then mm. I had to adjust my brain to say, there's no CGI, there's no mm. wires, they're actually doing this in one shot single takes that are long. That's it's so sparse. M- it's mind blowing, oh, yeah. though, what they're, what they're capable of. I think a lot of people find because partially because jackie chan was eventually did become obsessed with the silent comedians he often liked to insert a long not action sequence into a movie i always think of the police story uh sequence where he's just answering a bunch of phones and getting tied up in them. <laughs> and a lot of people so are funny. like what is this doing here but you're like think about how hard that would be to do like he's, yeah. he's doing the same thing where it's like and yeah it's gymnastics yeah, drunken master is full of that where he likes to you know uh he, one of his things is always he's always on his back heel you know so it's like uh, one of his arms is tied up or something or he's slipping around on the floor and fighting people so you, you always kind of have to think of that like where did they find and also i think drunken master takes a while to get funny uh, I think uh, mm-hmm. it starts very much as a traditional Shaw Brothers thing where you see a uh, a villain who is only a villain. He's not funny. Just murder a guy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, boy, this is going to be a tr- kind of traditional thing. But then uh, pretty soon Jackie Chan shows up and is a little goofy. And then even further on, uh, you get the, uh, the the titular drunken master who is pure comedy. He's a start getting drunk. Like He doesn't realize the secret to his skill until kind of like the third act of the film so i was like really waiting for like i see this master part where does the drunk come in (laughs) and it is it's very similar to when you go to a dinner party you really don't want to be at (laughs) and like it's really you know i enjoyed this film from beginning to end i'm not making this analogy to say it's it's bad in the first act but 
that first act of a dinner party you don't want to be at, like where maybe it's all your partner's friends or something like that. It's just so awkward and you're just like waiting. But by the time you have the third or fourth glass of wine, you're having a great time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're like, I'm at my smartest, most intelligent. I feel so close <laughs> to these people. Like it's going to be very different the next day. But like I feel like that's the the plot yeah. arch. And of, you can finally – defeat Thunderleg, who's been <laughs> tormenting your family. <laughs> but it's also another thing to know when you come into this movie, which I think for a Western audience, uh, you might not, is this is essentially uh, f- full of folk heroes that are characters mm-hmm. people would know quite well. Jackie Chan plays... Like a fairy tale. Yeah, but almost even like a... Like, uh, Davy Crockett or something because uh, these, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are yeah, gotcha. real people who have become kind of famous folk heroes. So Jackie Chan plays Wong Fei Hung who was a famous martial artist and a famous uh, uh, acupuncturist interestingly mm-hmm. and, and even the old man the the drunken master uh, is, a, is a famous uh, person slash character yeah. it's a bit you know it's a bit one of those ones where it's like we're we're 99 percent sure they existed and were one person but uh you know people are like i have a photo of wong fei hung and they're like no, no you don't <laughs> so uh oh it's like billy the kid yeah. is this billy yeah, the kid? yeah. yeah. so yeah. there's a bit of that and so i think that partially this movie is starting off straight because people ex- know what to expect and then it it's becomes becomes crazier and crazier because uh, that allows them to kind of, you know, have a little fun with it. And it carries forward into modern action films from Hong Kong as well. So, like Stephen Chow, a bunch of his stuff involves these classic characters mm-hmm. that are modernized and and things like that. And I think part of the anticipation is knowing who this person is or they'll reveal it's like, oh, it's this person. And you're like, oh, I know what they're going to become. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the mm-hmm. equivalent of like the Marvel su- superhero, right? Oh, yeah. Like they introduce sure. like, oh, this the guy. Howard he- the Duck in the background. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this guy's going to be the lizard because they used his name before he became the lizard, yeah. right? Like that's mm-hmm. the... The joke. And it's this same, is very much thing. a Wong Fei Hung origin story. I think that's how they get away with making him such a goofy character. And, and you know, he's redeemed at the end. He, he becomes a cool martial artist because he embraces his feminine side while drunk. <laughs> that's true. It's like, almost like a drag act mm-hmm. at the end. It's I found that and so And that's the thing Jackie Chan surprising. loves. I will say, if, if, if no one's seen City Hunter, where he uh, yes! fully becomes Chun-Li <laughs> and beats up a guy, he gains the powers of a... Uh, street fighter machine and just chooses chun Lee. it's a really strange film and, and has so much more significance than you would think but definitely uh, for jackie chan fans it's like a must watch because you you just see him hitting his stride yeah it's this and police story are like the two you can't miss from his early career sure. like yeah. those two are like the and also uh, i mean if you're attracted to him he's the most ripped and young he's ever been <laughs> 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 well, we've talked a lot about the dudes in this, but there was also a lot of women who were coming up at this time who are really given their due in these films. Alicia, you got a little bit about that. Yeah, I think one of my favorite sequences in this, and it, it happens early in the film, so it's pre-drunk Chackie Chan, but it's when he's kind of, he's at the market, he's going to impress his friends by hitting on this girl that he doesn't recognize, and you know he's making an ass out of himself, and he's pretty aggressive, and her guardian like spots this, and just whoops his ass and this is linda lynn who at this point would have been well into her 40s if not her late 40s and she was um a really like respected martial arts artist who was known for her fluid kick style and you see this on display in the film in this particular sequence it almost 
you know, like coming back to what you were both saying, it looks like it should be CGI, what's happening to her shins and her kneecaps, but it's not. <laughs> it's pure pure artistry and pure ballet, the equivalent of ballet for Kung Fu. Um, and she's someone who actually worked well into her 60s. Like, she's a face you'll, you'll recognize. I really love her. Wasn't she so, known as, like, I, the famous kicker? Like, she was known for her kicks? Yeah. That was her thing? Yeah. The, the fluid kicker. Yeah. That was her, like, kind of, I awesome. don't know how to translate it, but that was her name. And it, it ends up, turning out that he's hitting on his cousin and that's his aunt who he's never met before and it's 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 a great it's played for max comedy which is the perfect place to talk about our next film because while drunken master is silly and fun and full of these incredible acrobatic hijinks our next movie the 36th chamber of shaolin is about discipline and working hard towards your goals and looking out for other people and this is something that really resonated with black audiences at the time Cam, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Definitely in the 70s, you saw this uh, very interesting uh, connection with black audiences and martial arts films. And it comes in in a few ways. Number one, as we said, like a lot of theaters that needed something a little less expensive, uh, including theaters that predominantly served black audiences, uh, were interested in Kung Fu prints. But there's also a very interesting connection to uh, especially radical leftist uh, black politics. Uh, partially because the Black Panthers were very interested in self-defense, which involved martial arts. There were a lot of studios opening up teaching uh, black people martial arts in America. And also, a lot of people point to the fact that uh, the opposition to the Vietnam War uh, made uh, black leftists feel akin to Vietnamese people. Like, not only did they want the Vietnam War to be over, the best way for it to be over was a a Vietnamese victory. There was kind of a political link uh, between people. And then also you look at these films, and especially in the way where the Chinese government was worried about it being seditious, uh, these films are almost always about a person who is pushed down by a government or by Mm -hmm. a uh, group. And uh, they stick to their guns. And by sticking to their guns and working hard, uh, they gain their freedom and uh, kick everybody's butt. So it's pretty easy. Stick to their fists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's easy to tell why a black audience in the 70s, uh, especially a radical black audience, would be very interested in this storytelling. And it's a film, too, that I think uh, Jackie Chan has very much become a superstar in North America. But Gordon Liu, who is the star of this film, became more of a cult niche superstar. So, for example, Quentin Tarantino was a very big fan and used him in Kill Bill in a very specific Mm -hmm. point, Reza of the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, When he started making his own films, he also included Gordon Liu in that. Now, Gordon Liu plays the hero here, the master killer. And the scene that inspired me the most after watching all the action was the scene where he says he wants to go to the highest level. And he walks in and the monk is like, without wisdom, there is no gain. And that hit me when I heard that, and it sent me to start researching Buddhism and finding Kung Fu books and things. Were you guys familiar at all with this actor before this film? I I was only familiar because I went to a screening where Riza actually DJed or like wrote music and scored it to this film. 
um, and gave sort of a talk beforehand on, you know, the importance of Gordon Liu and how he, and he said exactly that, like, in contrast to Jackie Chan. It was a, you know, this film for me is really iconic, even prior to watching it, because I do think, when I think of Shaw Brothers, when I think of Kung Fu, I'm actually picturing a still from this film without necessarily knowing what it was or having seen it. It's just that incredibly synonymous with this period and it's kind of the the pinnacle of like when the Shaw brothers were really doing artistic elegant filmmaking but yeah he's I think he's someone that even just in pop culture needs to be explained a little bit more and kind of given his due he was someone who you know when the director of this film uh, Lau Kar Leung was looking to cast someone Gordon Liu had very little camera ex- in front of camera experience. Uh, he was actually a student of the director and he was really his best student. So the director really had to fight to cast this relative unknown star, who like would be star in this huge, huge film. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously he pulls it off incredibly. Um, but he was really known for like the hardest style of martial arts. So it was like something that um, was really important to get like a master of the of the field if this is going to be a film about someone mastering every chamber of Shaolin. And Gordon Liu is a beautiful performer with this intensity to his performances. And he was he was hugely injured while filming this, um, which I'm sure is true of every film like this. But, you know, it really is something that's only come in, kind of come out recently of just how many times he was injured performing his own stunts, all the weaponry that you're seeing that he's training with through the chambers it was real. It's not it's not prop weaponry. It's sharp. It can cut. And so knowing that and watching those scenes to me is so, so remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we talk about uh, when we talk about Drunken Master, kind of some bits of it being like, well, what am I watching here? This one is even more because it's like very specific. I mean, it inf- essentially invents the training montage <laughs> True. because it's one long <laughs> training montage. But a lot of the yeah. stuff he's doing here is not fighting. It's uh, very specific kind of forms and uh, strange acrobatic work. It's very serene. Like they'll be, you know, trying to jump through a pool of water and land on a specific tiny piece of wood to get across the other side. Like things that you wouldn't consider to be part of like what we think of a kung fu film. Um, but I found those sequences because they're, you know, they're in Shaw Scope, which was the Shaw Brothers' um, own sort of Technicolor widescreen process. So it looks phenomenal. Like it's there's just such majestic scenes where the color the color um design is so effective that it really does look like you're watching an opera just seeing all these men fail as they jump into a pool of water uh you just like that personally alicia that's just your personal like i'm gonna watch this after reading the news right you're gonna feel better pretty much yeah (laughs) Uh, Something I really love about this and that I think a lot of people are able to glom onto is when I watch movies like this, I get all charged up of like, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to get back into training. You know, I'm going to hit the gym. Turns out we can't. I cannot headbutt that much stuff without passing out. (laughs) Well, I can try. But I think there is that message of inspiration. Like if I just Mm -hmm. dedicate myself, I can do this. And I think there's certain people that are able to harness that energy and see that as inspirational. And then they're able to go on and do stuff like, you know, form one of the biggest rap syndicates of all time. Sure. 
I think also what's great about it is, you know, at, you know, he he arrives to the to the Shaolin Temple having been beaten and injured and starved because he's had to flee his town that the Manchus have completely uh, destroyed and killed his father and uh, killed a lot of his friends and fellow students, and so he arrives very, you know, broken. And his first kind of response to training is, well, I want to skip one through mm-hmm. 34 yeah. and just start at like 35 the, the, it's called the 36 chamber because he will eventually design the 36 mm. chamber but originally he's going through 35 stages and rightfully so those Shaolin monks just like beat him yeah. like he's just like he, they're like you're such a moron like you can't you have to start at step one and I do think that that's actually a really wonderful message mm. and watching that sort of initial failure and then slowly even like when you're trying to lose weight, like slow and steady wins the game, yeah. not like binge, you know, not like these fad diets, like that kind of mentality I found very therapeutic watching this. There's a very Buddhist sort of mentality sure. as yeah. well of that concept of the beginner's mind and you're always going back to it. I also and- think that what you're mentioning is how the Shaw brothers, because this is really a mainland movie, how they managed to thread True. the needle with the uh, the government is that almost all of their movies involve somebody who is too big for their britches being punished Mm -hmm. and then learning to cooperate so i think it's also a lightly communist message uh because Mm -hmm. it's about somebody who is too cocky and you see that in drunken master as well it's somebody who Mm -hmm. is overconfident getting their ass handed to them and then slowly <laughs> working not listening to their dad not listening to their dad yeah. not listening to their masters but but of course there's a there's a bit of that seditious material because he doesn't listen to the masters and that's why he's yeah. right and it, yeah it is interesting this is this is really a political allegory and this is where you see kung fu having this subversive message and it really being more didactic than what came before it, which I think is kind of interesting at this, you know, at this point in 1978. I have to admit, the first time I saw this movie, I saw it with dubbing instead of subtitling, and mm. it makes it for a very different experience because it's just so yeah. silly. And then you watch it in the original language, you're like, okay, no, I'm able to get more into yeah. Like, the I mean, maybe we should we should say to listeners, like, you know, if you if you've watched a lot of Studio Ghibli, you probably have your own opinion on do you watch the dubbed or do you watch the subtitled? And I think with Kung Fu, sometimes you really, really have to search for the original language with English subtitles. Sometimes it's easy. We're very lucky that the 36th Chamber of Shellin has been very properly restored by the Shaw brothers and by um, mainland China and given a lot of different versions. So you can actually find this film in, in 4K with English subtitles. And it is because the first time when Wu-Tang did it, or well, not Wu-Tang, when RZA did it, when I saw it, it was uh, absolutely the dubbed version. <laughs> yeah. And so it, did, it didn't It did have the same effect to me, on me. I was definitely listening more to how it was being live scored, but it was a totally different film to me watching it in in subtitles and that was true of drunken master too which is much harder to find in an english subtitled version I you're listening myself. to the uh british people attempting american accents because for some reason yeah. they tried to dub <laughs> yeah. always like hello uh nice to meet you it's terrible yeah studio ghibli they're gonna pull out their a-list stars you know like they've got their jillian mm-hmm. andersons and people yeah. like that but like yeah mm-hmm. you're you're definitely not getting that well they all quality the, acting with they this. also went through and redid them uh some mm-hmm. of the ones that they'd done before that were cruddy and it's just hard to imagine because i think now uh, like the unfortunate thing is sometimes i think the argument with kung fu is a dub you get to pay more attention to the action mm-hmm. but 
I agree. I mean, it just seems like subtitles are the way to go. And especially when we're saying, I, each of these movies, I know I've seen them and enjoyed them, but I barely scratch the surface of the significance of these films. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's just something that you kind of have to struggle and read and understand to get what these movies really are. Mm-hmm. Cam, thank you so much. I think that's the perfect place for us to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about John Hurt performances that traumatized us as children, and they aren't the ones you think. Really, we're not talking about Alien yet. That's coming up after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking at innovations in classic animation, where do you look? Well, one of the biggest boundary pushers when it came to animation was actually the UK. In 1978, Part 2, we talked briefly about Yellow Submarine, which was almost entirely done in the UK. And it's experimental for its time. It's a little wild. But it was just one part of the UK attitude towards experimenting with this genre. They had these bizarrely avant-garde animations that were commissioned for the post office, um, made by people like Len Lai, who was one of the biggest experimenters in animation coming up from the 30s and 40s, a lot of his techniques we now use today. He was a big inspiration on uh, Canadian-Scottish filmmaker and animator Norm McLaren, who won a bunch of Oscars for the National Film Board. But there was also these televised animations that were intended for deaf children. They would play on public television stations that were these big, bright, beautiful colors that were hoping to educate and attract uh, different segments of the population that may not be accessed. Um, Cam, how much do you know about UK animation and its influence? I mean, not a lot. It's kind of a an interesting place because it seems like a lot of independents just found the funding to create uh, their movies. And also, it's a place where a lot of the animated features are bizarre, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. Uh, I mean, we're talking today about uh, one that caused everyone to have nightmares. Uh, I know also when we were uh, looking... Uh, 
into other years uh, uh when the wind blows is kind of a famous one about two elderly people just slowly succumbing to radiation poisoning in a way uh, that you would not expect with like a david bowie soundtrack uh yeah so it's it, it, it's a very unique uh place for animation and it's interesting because lots of big cultural important ones came out of there and quite often it's associated with a very singular person who just wanted to make an animated movie and maybe didn't go on to make a lot of other movies they just they knocked out one that we all kind of remember and talk about uh but yeah it has a very uh often very stylistically interesting thanks to disney the marketplace was fairly open for the idea of an animated feature film however in 1978 disney wasn't doing so hot we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail when we talk about don bluth and the secret of nim because we're going to talk about don bluth (laughs) and the secret of nim but alicia can you kind of fill us in a bit about where disney was and how the market was open for more options and opportunities yes i mean disney had passed up on star wars yeah so Star Wars, of course, A New Hope, the first film comes out in 1977. Disney realizes that they've made a huge mistake and that they should be investing even more in live action, specifically sci-fi, these big blockbusters. They will eventually release The Black Hole in 1979. So in 1978, they're producing The Black Hole, which was a pretty huge disaster for them. But if we're just looking at like their classical animation, unfortunately, you get some of their kind of last, what I would say, of that period masterpieces, such as like The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which is 1977, and Pete's Dragon, The Rescuers, one of my favorites, 1977. And then 1978 hits, and it is... Like a, it's just a downhill roll, it feels like. So the films from 78 that were Disney were Escape from Witch Mountain, The Cat from Outer Space. Like they really kind of invested too wholeheartedly in live action or in some cases live action that combined classical animation and they really kind of lost their way. Um, and this then, of course, leads to something like The Black Cauldron, which is actually a very good film. But there was a marketplace then all of a sudden for studios that wanted to really celebrate the classic animation that Disney was the forerunner of. There's some movies that were made in this time that I've seen once, but they upset me so much as a child that I never want to see them again. Yeah. So that I'm sure if I rewatch them, I'd be like, okay, this is all fine. But like as a kid, Escape from Witch Mountain scared the crap out of me. It's really um, scary. Yeah. It's very scary. And there, there was also this opening up of more dark materials for children yeah. and more dealing with more difficult concepts in frightening and unusual ways. And one of those movies that I saw when I was very young that I never wanted to watch again, thank you, this podcast for reopening old wounds, was Watership Down. Um, the novel by Richard Adams was published in 1972, and it was notable for its really disturbing violence within the book and this very thoughtful, philosophic approach to death. Mm-hmm. So they decided to make this into an animated feature film in the UK. And then when they released this film, the British ratings board, they didn't have like a PG-13 equivalent, but mm-hmm. they released it for open for a wide audience. And I love this, this statement they from the British board. They rated it E. So they rated it E for everyone. For everyone. And the statement is, it may move children emotionally during the film's duration, but it could not seriously trouble them once the spell of the story was broken, says people who had no imaginations <laughs> whatsoever as a child. Or clearly had not watched the yeah, film yeah, all the way Yeah, it through. seems like they're yeah. like, rabbit movie, yeah, uh, E. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, they're cute bunnies. This is all fine. This is not, not a movie about cute bunnies. They're not coughing up blood at any point. <laughs> oh, they're not getting caught in not any caught sort in of barbed wire. Or... They're not being hunted by wild dogs. No. They're not quietly accepting death at the end of the film. <laughs> there's there's not a soundtrack by a whimsical Art Garfunkel. Yeah. Oh, man. Alicia, do you want to walk us through this one, please? Yeah, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I didn't grow up with it. Um, I did read the book quite young, but I didn't grow up with this. I am, I, I think this is a beautiful, this is such a beautiful film. It's so how it, It's stunning and it captures not just one style of animation. I mean, if you look at kind of the images that get sent out for promoting this film, it's very watercolor based. It's very, you know, very hand drawn in the way you would expect that we don't see anymore in animation. But then it also can kind of switch in some of the fantasy sequences or the sequences where the rabbits are explaining their own, I guess, for the better lack of a better term, religion or their call to order will be kind of like hieroglyphics or um, much more like almost like mood painting. And it just comes together really well in a way that Disney had not mastered yet. You know, there's not the story is like a bunch of bunnies um, have to leave their warren and find a new one. Well, there's and, a group of bunnies that decides to secede from yes. that warren yeah, because one of them yeah, has because, a vision. Yeah, due to apocalyptic One of them vision. has a vision. <laughs> yeah. Yes, which is that the fields run red with blood, <laughs> which they illustrate, which would be, I think that's in like the fifth minute oh, of yeah, the film. Yeah, so yeah. if you are with yeah. your kid <laughs> in a movie theater. One of the most terrifying parts sh- immediately. Yeah, like <sighs> I want to give a shout out to um, our art director, Gemma Newberry, who is British. And, you know, she she's talked about being profoundly traumatized by this film as a very young child in theaters in England. Oh, man. Oh, um, man. I guess a, probably upon a re-release, yeah. I think. Um, she's not quite that old. But uh, yeah, I can only imagine. But uh, yeah, they have to succeed from their existing warrant and find a new one because there's sort of this apocalypse, which would be the farmers are going to come and kill all the rabbits because they're destroying the fields. And uh, it's just them struggling to find, and there's territorial wars. Like there's a very, very scary rabbit named Woundwort, <laughs> which I feel like if, you know, if you look at a cast of characters and there's one of them named Woundwort, General Woundwort, yeah. <laughs> it's probably, <laughs> he's got like an eye patch. I mean, not really. He's got missing an eye. He's really intense, but it's at no point is there a, a sentimentality or, you know, an overly sweetness to the amount of death that's in this. Like within the first act, one of, you know, a rabbit that you think is going to be a main character is just carried off by, I think, a hawk. Like it's very, and they just have to react and there is no ability to mourn. You have to keep going. It's almost like a war film. Um, It really actually does match a lot of the war film genre. And it really is about that cycle of life before the Lion King decided to tackle it. It's it's a lot less sentimental and there's no like Akuna Matata the way there is in the Lion King. <laughs> Although you do have Bright Eyes sung by Art Garfunkel. Um, it's so disturbing. If you've lost a pet recently or in your life, like I did find watching this and understanding the idea of animal life was very helpful for me. Like just to kind of... Mm-hmm know that humans are very caught up in death and caught up in, you know, prolonging it. Whereas in the animal world, it's just such a like, it's just such an occurrence that they've dealt with differently. 
Like when animals know that they're dying, whether it's a pet and they, you know, they just walk off into the field and they don't come home one day. Like that's just not how humans are designed. Are you okay over there, Alicia? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just saying like, (laughs) which is interesting. So this is directed by uh, two directors, Martin uh, Rosen and John Hubley. They end up during production having a falling out. And um, despite the both of them being credit as co-directors actually john hubley dies during the production mm-hmm. so i'm imagining that's why there's two different animation styles yeah. and this is i believe the first opening which is stunning yeah. where they explain kind of the religion and the origin story of these rabbits mm-hmm. um is done in a very different style which is equally as beautiful as the rest of the watercolory mm-hmm. sort of film but i think that's why there's the two mm-hmm. distinct yeah. styles in the film yeah and i know martin rawson you know after his partner and the partner he fell out with we don't really know why they fell out or what it was but um, you know, after his death, I can only imagine directing this being that much more meaningful, having lost someone who was a very close collaborator and, and friend for most of his life. Um, so that's written everywhere in the film, for sure. I think something I really love about this movie is the intelligence that it's not just an allegory for humanity that you're putting on these rabbits like, say, Animal Farm. Right. This is you are actually considering what it's like to be a rabbit and face the concept of death every day from every possible direction, not just from outside, but from inside your warren as well. And then being able to impart our own human concepts on top of that, even though it is about this bunny (laughs) world, it's not these weird constructs on top of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings, the animated film. And and to me, that is a much more... uh, stratified thought out you know mythology whereas you know the book that the original book is so beautiful it really that's there but it really is relatable because it's about the animal kingdom and not about orcs and and you know that kind of thing well explaining things to children i uh, i will full disclosure here i am a parent yeah. um and i have a small person in my life and this is a discussion i have with my partner about when do we discuss certain things and mm-hmm. we've had to start vetting books that are say pre-1990 because there's certain concepts and certain words and certain philosophies that we just don't do anymore mm-hmm. we don't think that way but but this is one of those things where it's like, I think a lot of parents would shy away because they themselves don't feel comfortable yes. with this kind of material. But this is something I actually would want to sit with my child with earlier in the day before bedtime. So there's time to process and so discuss. the fields of blood um, aren't as scary as they would be at midnight. Exactly. Or, or the idea that like there is danger and it is real and yeah. things will end. And so you have to deal with that concept. And I mean, most people buy hamsters for their children because it's an easy way to learn mm. about death. Oh, so, poor hamsters. <laughs> it's, it's true, though. They aren't yeah. long lived, but like that's, I mean, it's about no, how it's to true. care and take care of something and then let it go. Yeah. And this is a book that kind of has that concept of what is the point of going forward if there is just everything coming at all times and it's because you must, because you do, because there's more to it, because in survival there is Well, value. I think it's interesting, you know, we have, we have, we have this, we've had this film on Hollywood Suite. It's come and gone a few times and it's, it's one of, it's a popular film for us because people always comment on it. And the people, including Gemma, our art, art director, who said like, you know, this traumatized me. This was terrifying. They don't ever say they dislike the film. In fact, they're very loving about the film, which I find I don't see a lot of other examples like that. Like The Land Before Time and Bambi traumatized me as a child being taken to mm. see those. Mm. Um, I don't love those films. Like, I don't really want to go see them again. 
but I do see this phenomena with people who grew up with Watership Down coming back to it and saying exactly like you're saying, Becky, this actually is a good lesson for my child, despite the fact that it's traumatizing. Like you can't protect your children this forcefully. Um, so why not teach them about death and, and this kind of circle of life in a very elegant, artistic and um, heartfelt way? You mentioned two examples of Bambi and The Land Before Time. Those are movies that have an upswing. And they end happy, and it's very much this life oh, goes on. Oh, and they're marketed this to children. Has... Yeah, they're singing little birds, and like this is not that. This is not that at all. No, this is this is talking about the sweet yeah. release of death. And I don't <laughs> think Martin Rawson, and I don't think John Hubley, and I don't think Richard Adams in his original book ever designed this for children. What no, happened was it no, got but marketed think, to children. And I, but I also think it's a the universal concept that animation is for kids, yes. which is we all know is not true. Yes. And the utilization of the voice actors in this, I'm a I'm a voice actor professionally, <laughs> and so this is something I always pay attention to. That's my little humble brag. Um, but it's something I always pay attention to. But like the level of talent oh. that they got for this film. I mean, we talked about John Hurt earlier. Yeah. He's uh, he's one of the bunnies. Uh, Zero Mostel. This is Zero, Zero Mostel or Zero Mostel. I wasn't pronounce it correct. Yeah, the Dom DeLuise of the 1970s. Yeah, Zero Mostel. This is his final, one of his final roles, I believe, his final feature. Yeah, he died before it came out. Yeah, and he's phenomenal as this this bird who kind of helps them out and teams up with them. Um, and that's like one of the very few moments of levity is his performance and mm-hmm. his joy. But which you got to have those moments of levity, man, otherwise this thing would be unwatchable. It's really spectacular, the work they did with the casting of that, that really brings these gorgeous animations to life. Because it's very realistic. Yeah. Like at the time, you would have thought of cartoon voices as being out of up here and lots of fun and here it's all very clear and it's very precise and these are very trained actors and that brings it to a very relatable yeah place. i mean there's a lot of anxiety in this voice acting and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anger and a lot of you know that's not there in disney voice acting at this during this period i think it has gotten better yeah. we were very lucky because we we did show this at the royal maybe two years ago and uh, on 35mm, and it turned out, we didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was the, the, the director's personal print. Mm. So oh, wow. that, I mean, that's the first time I had seen this film. And I feel like that was such a, I can't say enough what a, an experience this would be to see it on the big screen. With other people, too. <laughs> yes. I think that's the thing here. The, the reactions and the breaths and beside the, you. It was very, it was, a, it was children it was my, being carried um, out. Because animation was designed to be on the big screen. So when you're seeing a brush stroke, when you're watching on television, you just see so much more depth and so much um, more texture with this kind of animation on the big screen on 35 millimeter. Uh, it, it's really special. The other thing I just want to bring up quickly is the language mm. of the book that translates well into the film that um, I'm such a big fan of other languages, words that we don't have words for that encapsulate a single concept mm. idea or state of being. So, for example, there's a, a Swedish word, logum, which means not too much, not too little, just exactly <laughs> the right amount, which I love, which I've used in my in my day-to-day life. This has a word, and it is or to tharn, and it is to be frozen in terror, and so you can't move, and you can't do anything, and you just freeze up, and oh, you're stuck. Yeah, that's like a couple times a day for me. <laughs> I've never had a word for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tharn, exactly. It's two deer in headlights. And this this also creates that language, but doesn't make it pretentious like our next film kind of mm-hmm. does. <laughs> like, you know, it's very usable words that you're like, yeah, that is to Tharn. I oh. get it. That's fantastic. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I do. It's when he's 
trapped. I can't remember. It's, it's the cat. Yeah, the cat. There's a cat, a very evil cat character. This does carry the Disney tradition of all cats must be evil. <laughs> but in the rabbit world, right. that is actually accurate sure. as having had someone with a cat who brought in a bunny once. Um, this does happen. So, yeah, I remember the therning. That's true. That the freezing and fear. Oh, thanks for pointing that out. Oh, I love that. I love these words. Um, but something that I also really love about this film is that at, in the concept of 1978, to make this a CGI or live action film would have been yeah. impossible. Mm-hmm. And so animation allows us to make these unfilmable books filmable, mm-hmm. which our next film, as we've said, is The Lord of the Rings, was basically considered unfilmable. Um, the legacy of the rights and who it passed to, the people who looked on it, who were attached to the project. I believe Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. himself yes. was once attached to it, and he said, it's unfilmable, it can't be done. Cam, yeah. I think you've got some stuff about this. Sure. Let's talk about uh, that. I mean, Lord of the Rings, what to say? Uh, you're right. It's, yeah, uh, how do you even start? It was a film that people wanted to make since the books came out in the 1950s. And uh, you're right that the rights had passed between all sorts of people. David Lean, uh, somebody wanted the Beatles. They wanted this to be a Beatles film. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> you you ask me. There there was essentially in 1969, Peter Schaefer wrote a script that people liked. And that's what got passed around. Uh, I went to Antonioni. How about uh, if you think oh any Lord God. of the Rings is boring, uh, sit down for Antonioni's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> There'd be a lot more walking around mountains there. Uh, and it eventually landed... <laughs> For a while with John Borman, who we know went on to make Excalibur and did quite enjoy uh, fantasy. But for some reason at the time, uh, he was not a Lord of the Rings guy. He uh, he wrote a script that apparently nobody understood. It was uh, mashing all three books into one film. Uh, it apparently involved mm. selling sneakers at some point, if you believe Ralph mm. Bakshi. Uh, there was like a sneaker <laughs> brand created. Um, oh, my God. And so interestingly, uh, this idea and i think maybe even the script uh came across uh animator ralph bakshi and uh if you don't know he he was a guy he started off uh with terry tunes uh making mighty mouse and what have you uh and then uh he ended up he hates the man i would say he yeah, he he's, we would say he's kind of the equivalent of like our sure, like that kind of crumb interestingly yeah. uh, they they did not get along <laughs> um but uh yeah he he's a guy who likes to go his own way uh apparently quite nice to work with it, it sounds like did not love having producers and stuff he was the head of animation briefly for uh paramount uh you may know he actually uh, did a lot of rocket robin hood canadians may know oh. he uh, he famously stole the elements of rocket robin hood when there was a rights oh. dispute in canada and drove them across the border <laughs> he's the elaine may of animation yes, except he he internationally <laughs> stole them he 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 pretended he didn't have them and took them across the border into america and made more rocket robin hood so oh, there's man. some angry canadian who is owed money from mr bakshi no. uh but yeah he went on uh to essentially independently create his own studio which created stuff like uh, fritz the cat heavy traffic uh his latest film before this was coonskin which was this experimental uh kind of recently rediscovered film that was uh, had a lot of black figures at the time uh but did not go down so well Uh, a very in-your-face movie uh so he was interested 
in creating a movie that would make a lot of money. Uh, so Lord of the Rings is appealing. Also, he is an OG Lord of the Rings nerd. Uh, he tried to pitch mm-hmm. it to Terry Tunes. He read Lord of the Rings uh, almost right when it came out and, and was quite obsessed with it. And one of the reasons he was so uh tweaked by Borman's script is he was pissed off that it was three books into one movie he also we should say was he did a little bit uh, animation style wise of like you know your traditional at uh, 2d sort of animation but he liked to play with these experimental techniques to try and get as much realism of sure. movement uh using different techniques uh, into his films which we're going to talk about yeah, also we're saying he did that because yeah. he didn't have any money uh <laughs> because uh it was the quickest way he well that's a really well thought out solution because yes. it's one of the strongest parts of this. Yeah, film. I mean, uh, yeah, and he he had used it in previous movies. But you're right; he he's very obsessed with the city and realism. He grew up in New York. Uh, he says he's very inspired by uh, like urban uh, settings. So that that started early on tracing uh, real photos, um, and he also developed these techniques to blow up uh, 35 millimeter stills. He actually used a lot of old movies in uh, his previous film Wizards, uh, which. Uh, really mm-hmm. suits Lord of the Rings but he he would take like uh, Battleship Potemkin and uh, trace it and turn <laughs> that into crowd scenes. Just a super quick Wizards piece of trivia. Wizards features Mark Hamill's voice and they had to do a trade-off with Star Wars because Mark Hamill was doing Star Wars at the time and didn't know if he could come and do the VO for this and it was original. this was originally called Star Wizards so he made a deal with George Lucas to drop the word star from the Wizards so that Star Wars could have it and he could have Mark Hamill. Yeah. That was that the trade-off. Is crazy. It's, uh, it, he's an interesting guy with a rare weird story but yeah what you need to know going into lord of the rings he was obsessed with making lord of the rings he actually very much considered making a lord of the rings live action movie and what you get here is ralph bakshi's uh consideration of this is a live action movie basically and also the fact that yeah. he is doing it because he just knew that he couldn't afford to make it look good as a live action movie well they basically shot this mm-hmm. film twice so they did almost everything in live action mm-hmm. and they with rotoscope so uh alicia do you want to kind of explain what rotoscoping was yeah i feel like i'm going to screw this up but certainly if anyone has seen Linklater's a scanner darkly that's a modern use of rotoscoping but in this context in like 1978 it would have been um filming live action so in this case they filmed a lot especially the orc scenes and anything with lotharian oh god all the like lord of the rings fans are going to add us because yeah, i feel fine. like if you would if i was on this podcast as a 16 year old i would have had this all down yeah. but uh yeah anyway it's kind of <laughs> like all my high school german is also gone but um <laughs> you would yeah you'd film them in the desert so like really elaborate scenes and then you would essentially afterwards have animators trace over it and then you combine yeah. kind of the two pieces of footage in an optical printer i believe i really hope i'm not getting this wrong so that it's it's and you'll see it, it's very easy to see in lord of the rings especially with the orcs you'll see it where it looks partially photographed partially mm-hmm. drawn so the main outlines are live action photography, but the finer details, facial gestures, um, texture are drawn. Yeah. This is where it gets a little bit complicated and controversial because Ralph Bakshi would explain it a different way. If you looked at each frame of film, if you froze the frame of film and you looked at it, you'd see a drawing. But the total effect is exactly what I wanted. You know, it's, you know if Rembrandt. You take a Rembrandt painting. It's totally realistic. You look at it, it's a face you recognize. It's beautifully painted. If that moved, that would be what we did on Lord of the Rings. In other words, it's realistic, and that was his approach. But every frame of film was hand-drawn, and it's the new technique, and that's exactly what I was asked to. You know, the, the whole purpose suddenly 
the world will become purist in animation. It's ridiculous. The whole person, <clears throat> purpose of a film director is not necessarily how he did something, but how you feel when you're watching it. The whole purpose in Lord of the Rings is to make you believe what you're looking at on the screen. I did not, but if I chose to use live action in it, I would have used it. It's impossible to compare this movie to Peter Jackson's yes. movie. Like, they're just two completely different things. You just can't well, do I, it. Well, I don't know. Peter Jackson got pretty pissed off. Or, no, sorry, Ralph Bakshi accused Peter Jackson of full-blown plagiarism mm-hmm. and did side-by-side, side, like, he would take an image from his animated Lord of the Rings um, and then show how Peter Jackson, you know, staged it in terms of the placement of the actors, the placement of the camera. And I have to say, it's very, very convincing. Yeah, I, I will also say, it though, is. that they uh, they fully reached out to Ralph Bakshi to make him a part yeah. of the movie. And he was like, screw you. <laughs> screw She's you, man. She's pretty curmudgeonly. <laughs> yeah. and, and Peter Jackson, I think, handled it really yes. well, just kind of saying, like, Yeah, of course we loved your movie. He grew up with this animated version. It was one of his favorite films. Lord of the Rings has been with him his whole mm-hmm. life. And sometimes there's this anxiety of influence or seepage of influence that I think what happened to us with Disney films, what films you've watched over and over again are just sort of burnt into your retinas and that may have come out a bit when he was choosing the the framing of his film but i can also see that as an homage right saying like hey look i love the way you did this and i think this is like there's one specific image that he is particularly accused of is the ring wraiths over top of the log looking at the yeah Yeah. looking at the uh, the hobbits um which when you see the two shots side by side yeah it's the same shot but that's the way to do that because you're in there with the hobbits they're so tiny you're very vulnerable as this thing comes towards you exactly and i think with the rotoscoping especially the ring wraiths are very effective in this film they scare the crap this film's terrifying the orcs and the ring wraiths with that technique i think are almost i would argue scarier than the live action peter jackson and that's that's quite impressive the balrog maybe looks a little too much like a dude in a uncomfortable suit yeah the balrog not as much (laughs) uh, everything else great yeah but the differentiation between the world of the ring and the world outside Mm. i Mm -hmm. think uh, the real world and the ring world are i think it's stronger in the rotoscoping the way they sort of make yeah make that less like it's a weird filter and more Mm -hmm. like it's no you're in a completely different realm and these things are going to get you like that's really cool i think like Watership Down, you know, getting rid of any anxiety around mismatching animation styles, like not needing to feel like you have to be technologically consistent, really, for me, makes this a distinctive, interesting and enjoyable film. Yeah. And I'm sure maybe that's not true of the audiences of 1978 who are really here for the story and really here to see these beloved books adapted to the big screen. You know, 40 years later, We've had a number of Lord of the Rings, so it's it's mm-hmm. for me watching. I was watching more the technique, the styles of animation, how the story is told. It wasn't so much about like, oh, here comes Legolas. Like it, yeah. it was less <laughs> less that. Yeah, Legolas for fangirls is not a huge. Part oh, of but this. come on, it's voiced no, by Anthony Daniels cute. of C three PO fame. You don't like that? <laughs> you know, turned on by the sexiest sexy, voice in town. Sexy, sexy man. The sexiest <laughs> robot. John John Hurt plays Aragorn, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Yes. Actually, uh, I will John say Hurt. it is a very sexy Aragorn. You cannot. Uh, and, and, <laughs> the voice acting in this, much like Watership yeah. Down, is is excellent. And he went specifically. And you're gonna live and die by that. Uh, to the BBC Dramatic Company that uh, we just oh. uh, we so all the radio actors um and actually i believe that uh they went on to record a lord of the rings uh 
on radio with most at least some of the same actors reprising their roles uh yeah it's interesting and i mean that when you talk about the different versions of lord of the rings the important thing to know is that i mean part of why this it didn't flop it made a ton of money it is worth saying that and Mm -hmm. it's kind of wild there was never a sequel partially it was a bit uh hit by uh rankin and bass had been uh preparing Mm -hmm. an adaptation of return of the king at the same time so that actually came out right when this was happening the rights were all kind of a mess Uh, a big problem is uh bakshi really wanted this to be uh, like we said he was mad about the film being uh turned into or three books turned into one movie they negotiated him to make two movies so this is actually uh the first book and part of the two towers um oh, it's one and it's a one half. and a half yeah, that's right. and he, yeah. so part of the deal was he was like listen when these two hit you make let me make the hobbit because there was a rankin and bass hobbit uh he hated it yeah. it was full of songs and not at all <laughs> what he thought uh not not the boring songs that jrl token did uh he wanted it to be called tom bombadil is a it's, that's his banner oh, song. Yeah, sure a... everybody loves tom <laughs> bombadil even bakshi cut tom bombadil and <laughs> Everybody and cut Tom seems, Bombadil. Uh, Everyone's yeah. like, Tom, you're sitting this if one out. If anyone is Tom Bombadil, it's Ralph Bakshi. <laughs> he, uh, he wanted to call it part one, and the producers would not let him. And he, he credits mm-hmm. a lot of the fan anger to the fact that they thought they were going to the full Lord of the Rings, and they got half of it. I would imagine this is one of the first sort of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if either of you can come up with a different example, but one of the first sort of like fans were anticipating like a piece of literature that fans anticipated so, so much. And because it's 1978 and they could, you know, kind of communicate with each other and through newsletters Mm. and things like that, we're very vocal about. Like, obviously, it's pre-internet because we got this with the Jackson stuff of, you know, what what would make fans angry every time someone was new member was added to the cast yeah. people fans would respond directly and already prejudge the film but i'm willing to bet in 78 this was like that oh absolutely he, he says the fans hated it and it's worth saying that yeah. there was lord of the rings fever in 78 because a silmarillion was published uh posthumously oh, wow. so that was the year of that so even if you kind of like the books were wow. back on the scene because uh, the books are from the oh. 50s for the most part so yeah it was suddenly lord of the rings was cool again but uh yeah interestingly bakshi's he really it really affected him that he felt that he let fans down uh but he said the one thing that he like holds in his heart is uh tolkien's daughter loved it and she had had approval the whole way and and he said like he honestly literally almost sees himself as a preservationist like he is like i made Hmm. this movie because people were gonna screw with lord of the rings and if i didn't make it Lord of the Rings would be remembered as a joke. It should also be said that, like, the producers who were making this didn't have that same love in the same way. No. In fact, I believe one of the one of the producers hadn't even read the book and thought it was about a yeah, wedding. Yeah, oh, there's, there's, he has a million wonderful there's, stories. Is there even a wedding? There's no, <laughs> no. wedding in this. He thought the yeah, ring. Well, there's I romance, mean, which was made bigger he in Peter partially, Jackson, yes. I believe, from United Artists, he got the rights, partially because he read the Borman script and was like, what the hell is this? Give me the rights. <laughs> and the, apparently, like, the executives took a beat and just went, right? <laughs> They're like, I could barely read. Like, none of them had read through oh my it. God. They were just like, this is a mess. Give us money and we'll <laughs> gladly give you the rights. Because they were like, yeah, they've been sitting on this script and they're all like, yeah, yeah, none of us can get through it. Like, you read the whole thing. Uh, oh so my God. There uh, may be, yeah. there, there's probably no wedding, but definitely... <laughs> 
this influence, like depending on what age you are and what age your parents were when they got married, has anyone else like gone through like their parents' wedding album and been like, what the fuck is up with all the Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah. Like costumes? My mom, and, my like, mom lived no. in a house called Bag End at one point. So oh, my God. It was huge like, in my parents' era for sure. I yeah. think like late, yeah, like late 70s was like the Lord of the Rings themed wedding <laughs> era. And then it comes back again in like the 2000s. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, all those like kind of peasant blouses, like everything, like long sure. hair, like very elfish. I feel like that's Lord of the Rings having influence on the, the wedding. Know. My scene. mom had a low cut dress with an empire waist, but there's and there's a picture of my dad's best friend who was the best man staring down her dress. Yeah, I mean, that like, sounds lovely. That beautiful. sounds very fashionable. But yeah, it's very classy, and it's interesting. And, and as much as this film. Uh, disappointed fans but made box office and whatever it was the only lord of the rings uh that was yeah. good really i've never seen the return of the king r- ranking in bass because i think that just evaporated um i think it's pretty notorious yeah, yeah and uh and i also think there's like a lot of interesting stuff looking back i mean it's artistically beautiful it's a very fascinatingly animated film i think it's uh in modern day where we talk about this kind of stuff it was much less uh, ableist quite often you see these hobbits are portrayed by uh Actors that are not uh, little people, they are not dwarves, but in this film they absolutely were. Billy Barty played played, uh, like uh, Frodo. So, yeah, there's there's interesting ways that this film is progressive and cool and kind of deserves to stand alone. And I think, again, it's like Peter Jackson was the same kind of guy. He also wanted to make Lord of the Rings and he wanted to be very true. Like the scripts are almost identical because it's, they both were just like, I want to make the book. (laughs) Do not Mm -hmm. let, like the dialogue is the dialogue. I'm not writing stuff. Mm -hmm. But six hours also allows you to get more into the character nuance and the relationship that you just don't get in like the two hours of the animation. And I think that's the biggest issue that a lot of people have watching that one now is that you don't get yeah. that beautiful Frodo Sam relationship. Um, you don't get like Gandalf is basically a deity right yeah. off the top. You don't get the nuance of his performance. Um, you know, so there's not much of a transition between the gray and no. the white personality wise. Um, and yeah, that's you true. definitely also uh, people accused it at the time rightfully that you gotta know. Like I would be lost, I think, if I didn't know the books. You know, they're like, this is not right. to lead you into this. This is like a fun thing for fans. Uh, but it, you're, you're, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and especially I was with surprised. the dangling ending. I was surprised by how much um, Gandalf in this film resembles the the wizard from The Sword in the Stone, mm, the Disney. Sure. Like it's it's kind of uh, like for, for uh, you know an animation mode that's rejecting Disney. It was like, that's weird. That really does look like the wizard from... Yeah. Sword in the Stone. I think we all have that as a concept of that's what a wizard looks like. I think that's yeah, part of the zeitgeist. Sure. Blue. Yeah, And I also true. think, Long to nose. Baxi's credit, as much as he didn't love working for people, I think he loved all animation. So I think I think he's yeah. as likely to pull from a Disney source as anything else. Like, he, he pitched all sorts of Terry tunes. They just wouldn't take them. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think he I think he just likes uh, he likes what he likes. He's a, an odd guy. But I think we can also recommend everybody go check this one oh, out. Oh, for sure. Right? Like, even just for, like, yeah, even for an oddity of, like, hey, you should probably see yeah. this. It's groundbreaking and kind of fascinating. And again, I'm going to say I, I would really love to see this on the big screen, mm-hmm. especially with that rotoscoping orc battle. Um, I would love to see that because I think these films very rarely get screened theatrically. Yeah. Like a lot of animation, we think of animation as like straight to video, pop it on for the kids, like beat up old VHS cover. But 
re- going back to its roots and seeing how they were meant to be seen tends to be very uh, revealing. Sure. Well, a lot of animation is also considered disposable and for yeah. children. Yeah. And for children means not good. Yeah. So that's always an issue that, I mean, I think now, I would say now we're becoming more aware of animation as its own genre, its own medium um, to be able to convey stories that may not necessarily translate in the same way in live action. Yeah, it's something that's like handcrafted. Mm-hmm. Like as we know, these when you embark on an animated film, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a six-week shoot. Yeah. It's years, like looking even at what what Wes Anderson's doing with stop motion right now, like it's years of production. And uh, to just say then that it's like, you know, we're not saying it, we're saying it's kind of treated as disposable is is doubly insane. Yeah. So when you see something that has as much love in it, like both Watership Down and people who like invested years of their lives to make these things, to convey these messages, it's it's why we watch movies. Yeah. And on that note, (laughs) I think we've... (laughs) I think we've come to the end of our episode. Once again, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. And uh, I was trying to pull a quote from Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Uh, Is it a Tom Bombadil quote? be with you. (laughs) There's there's no real quotes from that, are there? I don't know. So oh, you have my, my precious. Act. You my have precious. my yeah, yeah, yeah. You fool. Yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry oh, you. See, we're plenty. We've got plenty yes. of them. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Becky. I'm just gonna watch Sergeant's Peppers again. Oh God! <laughs> so we didn't even talk about it this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you're just gonna go watch it again. Yeah. Uh, join us again in two weeks, where we watch Stephen King explode. You think there's a lot of Stephen King now? Just wait until we journey to 1983. That's in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We have enough enemies as it is. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.